After 14 books and more than 15,000 lines of poetry, we have reached at last the final book of Ovid's epic, The Metamorphoses. And in the final book, we encounter the philosopher Pythagoras, who has the longest and most unusual soliloquy in a poem that has been filled with him. Pythagoras's vision of reality seems to resemble closely Ovid's himself, a world of constant change in which nothing, neither body, nor city, nor meaning, stays fixed for long. Yet, as we consider the words of Pythagoras, gaps between his account and Ovid's poetry appear, making it obvious that this is not a simple philosophical summation of all that has come before, stated as simply and ponderously as possible, to make sure no reader could miss the point. What, then, is Pythagoras's speech doing here, seeming to be a capstone to this massive propulsive work? What kinds of explanations are possible in poetry that are not possible in philosophy? Are the poet's aspirations for immortality essential to his act of writing? If so, how does Ovid hope to keep his name alive, even beyond the end of Rome and the Roman world? And, given that we are still reading him, how did he succeed? This is the key to all mythologies, and today we are discussing Ovid's Metamorphoses, Book 15. And now, here is Elijah with the opening question. Hey all, welcome. So the question for today is, to what degree does Pythagoras speak for Ovid? Is he an avatar or is he just a, another character in this procession of characters that Ovid has presented us with? Maybe we should start by saying what's unique about the Pythagoras monologue, right? It's not, uh, well, it's by far and away the most philosophical type monologue in the Metamorphosis. It's not about it's not about love or anything like that. It's not about love or, or sex. In fact, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's non-sexual, but it's not, the, the arrow that's there is not focused on any specific person or body or anything like that. It's long. <laughs> sure, it's the longest monologue in the book, in the whole poem. And we have the return of the bees out of the dead carcass of the bulls, yes. <laughs> which is not central to the dialogue, but. Uh, well, um, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's a claim about what it's a claim about transformations in nature right so in that way it is it is i think very important well and what it was out so uh in an earlier episode on the georgics we talk about how ovid has this long extended thing about orpheus right and teaching Vir- this virgil sh- has a virgil has virgil a, in the right. but uh the shepherd who causes orpheus's wife's death <laughs> uh has to make amends by taking a bull, sacrificing it in a really particular way, and then bees spring out of it. And it's presented as if it's scientific fact. And then Pythagoras, in introducing the same concept, he says, however, there are stranger things that have been tried and tested, and these we must believe. And then he goes on and gives the example of the, the uh, bees coming out of the bull. So it's just a very strange moment. These we must believe. It makes us wonder what Ovid could be saying about Virgil since he's taken up some of the same, some of Virgil's story from the Aeneid in the previous book, The Pilgrimage of Aeneas. It's another question that's lurking in the background. Right, so do we think that he's saying, and that sort of goes to the question about what Pythagoras's role is here, but do we think that he's, <laughs> I mean, there's so many ways to think about it. Is Ovid the poet alluding to Virgil the poet? Is it, I mean, obviously is, but is it supposed to be 
reinforce Pythagoras's authority as a speaker, or is the kind of absurdity of the claim supposed to undercut Pythagoras's authority? I mean, does it does do like pastoral and farming matters? Does Ovid care about those things at all? It doesn't seem like he does previously in the poem. Um, on on one forty line one forty five page three seventy. He says, Pythagoras has this complicated speech where he says, O mortals, dumb in cold fear of death, why do you tremble at Stygian rivers, shadows, and empty names, the lying stock of poets, and the terrors of a false world? I tell you that your bodies can never suffer evil, whether fire consumes them or the waste of time. Our souls are deathless. Always when they leave our bodies, they find new dwelling places. So in regard to that, it seems like outright there's something where poetic craft is acknowledged, but it's placed in the context of this claim that souls are immortal, but the claim that souls are immortal is part of a broader claim that everything dies and is impermanent. Even volcanoes will cease their activity, which makes the claim that souls are immortal skeptical, especially when he makes the claim that souls are immortal skeptically placed in the in the words of a person saying, we need to not believe poets' lies. And so Ovid is doing this like four beat level of irony that makes it extremely hard to parse out what to take seriously. Right, right. Well, especially when you consider what he says in the epilogue, because he seems to confirm the lies of the poets, right? That he's That Pythagoras is calling the lies of the poets because he says that after he's completed this poetic work, essentially, he will be immortal, which seems to completely fly in the face of, of most of what Pythagoras is saying. Well, if the poets are telling the truth, right? That's the, so the epilogue is, I guess we should just read the epilogue since we're going to want to talk about it a lot. So the epilogue. Now I have done my work. It will endure, I trust, beyond Jove's anger, fire and sword, beyond time's hunger. The day will come, I know, so let it come, that day which has no power save over my body to end my span of life, whatever it may be. Still, part of me, the better part, immortal, will be born above the stars. My name will be remembered wherever Roman power rules conquered lands. I shall be read and through all centuries. If prophecies of bards are ever truthful, I shall be living always. So he's saying... I'll be an immortal poet if the prophecies of poets to immortality are ever truthful, right? And you're reading him, Adam, being certain about that? No, no, no. I think it's yeah. the logic of the epilogue is tautological, right? Mm-hmm. It's like he's grounding the claim that he's immortal in the in his own claim that he, you know, and then he's asking, <laughs> it's like the truth of this statement relies on poets being true but it's like the question i'm asking within the statement is are poets ever true whatever right we we already have had a lot of language already about poets being lying poets having to be believed or being liars but it's a specific part of their poetry right like greg has brought up a lot and i think it's right that there's a lot of lying in ovid but what he's saying here is the prophecies of bards about their own relevance are true, right? Their own continued influence are true. And Ovid can, Ovid can have a book full of falsehoods, right? 
literal falsehoods that are maybe have some poetic truth in them. But and he can also have the prophecy that I will be read forever, which I, I just don't want to conflate the prophecy about continued relevance with truth and poetry generally. Does it make sense? I shall be read and through all centuries, if prophecies of bards are ever truthful, I shall be living always. So you're reading that as saying, if any prophecy of any bard has ever been truthful, then it is also true that I shall be living always. Maybe it's something more like, so if we are, if bards and poets are the same thing, uh, bards and poets tend to say, we will always be important, right? Me and my cohort will always be important. That's the prophecy that may or may not be truthful, which is a separate issue from whether this poem is true. When he may, he asserts the claim the the bards and poets make right first, and then he adds the clause later. If what they say, which I just said, is true, then I will be immortal, right? Mm-hmm. So I do think he's a he's affirming that as his own position, but he also acknowledges like what other way could you know that other than the fact that people right. are still re- reading Ovid in two thousand and twenty one. There's also the. The conditional line that my name will be remembered wherever Roman power rules conquered lands. That's kind of why I was thinking about the the, the moment where the bees are born from the slaughtered bull, right? So it's like we have this long, we have nature as a series of transformations in the abstract, but then when it's like a specific tries to become specific, you get a series of transformations that are do not correctly represent what is happening in nature. We can't talk about what Ovid knew about animal behavior or animal life or animal transformation, right? But we can talk about the way that Pythagoras presents himself as getting to his knowledge of the the metaphysical order behind nature, the metaphysical truth behind nature and how he claims to have come to that knowledge, right? And, I, I, and how that maybe corresponds with Ovid's claim in the epilogue. Does that make sense? I don't know quite what I'm trying to say here. But. Are you just saying like there's a tension between the text generally, but also Pythagorasly, Pythagoras explicitly saying that the only true, the only constant is that ever, there's always change. I mean, that's like the easiest way of saying it, right? But also holding on to this notion that in some way Rome is the city that will be eternal or something. Yeah, I mean, there's a tension there for sure. I was thinking more like he's, he's saying the only constant is change. But many of the examples he evokes to make that claim when he tries to make the claim specific, right, are fantastical. I don't, I don't know. This moment with the bees, right? He frames it. However, these are strange. These are stranger. Th- however, there are stranger things that have been tried and tested, and these we must believe, right? So he sort of frames it as a sort of proto-scientific approach, right? He doesn't say, "Well, Virgil told us about this, therefore it's true." Mm-hmm. He doesn't say, "I've told you about this, therefore it's true." He says, well, we've put it to the test and it's true. And then he gives the example of the bees. And then he gives this example of the bear cub. Newborn is not a bear at all, but only a lump, hardly alive, whose mother gives it a licking into shape herself as model. 
right? Which I guess we could read that as like somebody saw a mother bear, you know, cleaning her newborn and <laughs> radically misread what was going on or whatever. I don't know, but he's he's posing, presenting it as scientific in some way, as much as that category is. Yeah, it's not modern science, but some proto version of science. But I think to what Paul was saying, I mean, there's a real question in this last book. I mean, what has made Ovid so hard to read is that his tone is so inconsistent. It undergoes so many, his, his sort of stance appears to undergo so many metamorphoses that it's even hard to know when he's being pious or when he's being irreverent. And if I think back to the early books, I think we found them deeply irreverent, right, towards tradition. And then you look at book 15, and if I were reading this out of context, if I were reading an anthologized version of book 15, I would read it as a conventionally pious poet who is praising the people he's supposed to praise, <laughs> right? And what do we do with that, you know? And Paul was asking, does Ovid, Paul was gesturing towards this question, does Ovid see Rome as the eternal city? And at this point, at the end of the book, I don't know. I don't know. There's real evidence that that he was mocking the whole project and, and sort of pointing out the cracks. But then there are other moments where he, he really does seem to be sort of the picture of piety. It seems like the general trajectory of the metamorphoses from beginning to end is from irreverent, irreverent towards the gods to being reverent towards the Roman project and sort of making it distinct from the gods. But Ovid is slippery enough that I could be convinced that it's the other way around and he's, he's undermining the Roman project in some way as well. Well, how, how would those two things be different? Exactly. Cause I mean, it makes sense to me to say that they're different, but like, aren't the gods and like civil duties and responsibilities your responsibilities to the guys, your responsibilities to the, the city deeply intertwined? I th- yeah, that's a good question, Paul. I think over the course of the books, you see an increasing emphasis on human agency to change things and humans becoming gods, right? Like Caesar, right? Being deified. And then I think the traditional pantheon, I think this is the distinction. The traditional pantheon is kind of shown to be sort of silly and unserious. But then there's this sort of shift where he's like, but there is something that matters. And the kind of the way we talked about it earlier was like, the gods are in this sort of timeless realm. And they sort of, we talked about almost like a sitcom, right? Like five or six, seven episodes ago, right? Where the the gods have these episodic hijinks that they do, but nothing fundamentally changes. And then when you, as you come down into the more human world and the founding of Rome, the human world is a world where, there are consequences and people do have agency to change and shape things. And I mean, I think the overall suggestion is that if you're comparing the divine realm, at least the traditional sort of pantheon with the human realm, the human realm is more serious because that's a place where things actually happen. Cities are actually founded that change the course of things where the gods sort of never really change. They have power, but they don't have seriousness or or them being sort of outside of time is almost a liability because they can't ever build anything, right? It's for Jove, it's just one sexual conquest after another, but there's really no narrative in the sense of something that has weight, right? The, the possibility of pathos is stripped from the gods by Ovid. And I think that he's sort of placing that mantle on humans. 
but those are big abstract concepts about the book as a whole. So I, I don't know. That's how I'm sort of thinking about it at this moment. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's like to be, to if when you're immortal, it reduces what can possibly matter. And it's like the only way that the gods actually have efficacy is when they do stuff to humans, which is generally atro atrocities. But I think that is really interesting to think about is like the only, the only uh, cause or effects that they have on the world are through their <laughs> dealings with humans. But they ultimately matter because that's what ends up shaping human beings or shaping the, the physical world, at least in certain ways. I guess one question I had, and I hope this doesn't leave your question behind, Elijah, but what, what, is, the, what is the tie between Pythagoras's, the part of Pythagoras' speech where he talks about being a vegetarian and not eating meat? And the and then going into like the you know metaphysical conversation about how everything is change, because then because like at first I was like okay like he's just leaving that that conversation about being a vegetarian behind, but then he circles back to it at the very last part of his speech. So it I missed it if it's there, but I didn't see how I didn't see the through line through his speech. You know, with those two ideas in mind. So I think the interesting part of that is awakening to the sense of that obvious, I think is really seriously trying to create, which is that the external world is profoundly human, right? Like all these transformations have abandoned the world. And I think part of the reason why he has Pythagoras throw in the vegetarian speech, I read that. I, ironically, I had a really hard time reading that earnestly. Uh, and I, but I think Ovid threw that in there because it shows you how much better Ovid does it than Pythagoras, right? Like Ovid really successfully awakens in you a fear and an attunement to the natural world via the soul, the, you know, the countless souls of humans that have been transformed in, into plants and animals. Whereas the didacticism of Pythagoras is just dumb, I guess. When you say you read it ironically, what do you, you mean? I meant that Pythagoras probably believed it or Ovid is treating Pythagoras as believing oh. it, but Ovid, the yeah. author, doesn't have any stake in yeah, 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 the yeah. vegetarianism just, Pythagoras talks just, about. But just the vegetarianism part or also the everything is flux part? So I think he's got some stake in everything is flux that he has to agree with Pythagoras in. But I think now I'm thinking of it is it really feels like Pythagoras, or at least I'm reading on some of those, Pythagoras is a, a poetic foil to Ovid. It's the bad poet version of himself where he, he wants the same things or is trying to get them across, but he does it so much less successfully. When Take I a look think... at line 455. All change, and we, part of creation, also must suffer change. We are not bodies only, but winged spirits with the power to enter animal forms, housed in the bodies of cattle, etc. So that's the one line that sort of ties the continual change, the immortality of the soul, and ties it into don't just kill livestock and eat them you may kill beasts that attack you but but don't eat animal flesh because they could be because it's cannibalism mm -hmm. 
Oh, yes. Therefore, we should respect those dwelling places which may have given shelter to the spirit of fathers, brothers, cousins, human beings, and so on. It's sort of a... <laughs> That's sort of funny because we've talked so much about the way this poem relates to the past and thinks about the past as a source of influence and like a source of something to respect or something to reject. But this is like, in a way, even though it's this very sort of abstract dialogue in a way, it's, it's this very literal sense of like, don't kill animals because you might be eating your ancestors. It's like the most literal possible way you could understand like the past as a, as being, you know, alive in the present. Well, it's also silly, right? Like <laughs> if their, if their souls are eternal, why does it matter? Like you're just eating the inessential part of them. <laughs> like It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me. I I'm kind of agree, starting to agree with Greg that it is kind of just a, he's just poking fun. Or like, somehow, it's like, like, I think he, I think he agrees that like all things are changed. Like the only constant is change, but he just thinks Pythagoras's version of it is stupid. And the only eternality that we could possibly accomplish is in like the historical reality of just being remembered, you know, that's the et eternality we can strive for. So, and that can obviously still change too. That's still subject to change and how you're remembered is still subject to change and all these other things. Um, but Pythagoras seems to like miss that subtlety, at least the way Ovid portrays him. But still, Ovid has given us these descriptions. Where I was reminded of Acteon, who became the stag and then was ripped apart by his own dogs and uh, hunted by his own hunting party. Rather gruesome scene. But that was, as most of the transformations in Ovid are, an immediate transformation. And here Pythagoras is talking about this sort of very complicated process where you don't know if, you're, if your loved one dies in a normal way, if their soul goes into your cow in the field, that doesn't seem right, or a calf that's born, how would you know? It well, precisely what Pythagoras removes is the poetic element. Right. Like he, he doesn't establish a judgment of the gods that links souls to animals. And I think we've seen this like a couple of times where Ovid's very careful to highlight that somehow a, a person's destiny in their transformation of the soul is always fitting the way that the life lived out. Whereas Pythagoras is, is, is this jumbled chaos like, oh, yeah, you'll, you know, bees into bees from cows transformation of Acteon, uh, there was the intentional element that Diana intended to transform him into precisely the thing that would lead to his punishment and death, that become a trophy for ga game hunters. Mm -hmm. And it's not clear why your ancestor, who's a farmer, would then be transformed into a member of your livestock. The, well, there's no intentionality. There's just chaos, as Greg was saying. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, I don't quite have the historical background to say this for sure, but I'll, I'll offer it up as a possibility. I wonder to what degree Pythagoras is not a representative of Ovid, but he is a sort of representative of the popular religion of the day. 
like he's sort of a, a blend of lucretianism he's got the metempsychosis from you know whatever the neoplatonists but uh, essentially like the the analogous of you know for you to write today Ovid might you know have somebody presenting you know the eastern wisdom packaged for americans you know yoga and feeling good about yourself or something right it's this sort of watered down popular silly religion pythagoras is the mouthpiece of it and ovid's essentially giving him the stage to make an ass of himself i mean that's i think one possible reading of this character well it's definitely true like pythagoras was taken very seriously amongst like the elites of antiquity in general i don't know how big of a force he was at this particular time but it makes sense to me that he would have been important i like that like taking that as a hypothesis how do you feel then about the relationship of Pythagoras's speech to the other tales in this final book, right? Because it's embedded amongst the stories of the dawn of Rome as a, a force that will become the, as Pythagoras says, is like the head of the boundless world, you know, and it's like great and not permanent, but as permanent as a state can be empire. Yeah, I think that's a good question, Adam. I want to make one comment before we move on to it. I think if it is true that Pythagoras is supposed to be a foil, like Greg said, it is certainly his manner of delivery that matters, right? Him being so didactic, so direct, so mm-hmm. oracular, uh, in a way that Ovid doesn't really dare to in the rest of this book. So methodologically, right, Ovid is wooing us, seducing us, not giving it to a straight, forcing us to think. Pythagoras is like, I figured out the rules. Here they are. I'm going to repeat mm-hmm. myself like a dozen times in four pages <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> about how everything changes. And so he may be right. He may agree with Ovid about everything transforming, but I think the, the manner of delivery is, is unpoetic in the sense that Ovid has, in the sense of poet that Ovid has demonstrated over the last 14 books. Yeah. Um, but to your question, well, although I think it's, it is worth pointing out really quick that it's not necessarily true that he doesn't, the Pythagoras doesn't try to make any characterological associations, right? He, he does say that the bees prove their parenthood from the bull because they are for also fond of meadows and fond of toil and work with hopeful spirit. And the horse being warlike after he's buried produces hornets, cut a sea crab's claws bury the rest of the body and a scorpion comes from the ground. So, I mean, he is trying to make, I'm not sure how you want to think of that connection, but it's not necessarily chaotic and it has a sort of, yeah, characterological component in the way that Ovid treats transformations. When he also discusses the age of iron and age of bronze and so on, which is what Ovid started the book with, which is important as well. Paul was saying before that the idea of immortality is in the epilogue is, is tied to the idea of being immortal within the context of the Roman Empire. And this is this is the this final book is largely the development of the Roman Empire, the myth, you know, mythical forebears, and then it ends with the deification of Caesar and the coming of Augustus. So in a sense, like uh, you know, Ovid is is linking his goal as a poet to the success of the Roman. The Roman project, right? I think that's important too, because linking his destiny to the Roman project, especially when he so explicitly points out that Rome will fall, is really interesting. Where, right, he gives this catalog of great empires that have fallen, and he says, and Rome will last forever. 
And it's obviously, you know, he's beholden to whatever powers that be that um, that Ovid fails the, or the poet fails to make that connection explicit. But then at the end of his poem, he ties his own fate in this very ambiguous way to Rome's fate. But that's weird because I think too, I mean, like certainly we read him because Rome conquered, but he had to have known about the Greeks whom were conquered. And he knew that the Greeks were read long after Greece was conquered. I, th I think that's really, I, I feel like he, he's aware of that in some way. Like the people who are going to read him best are not Romans even, though people who come much later. It really feels like he's, he's putting, if there's anything that touches eternality, it's beauty. It's not political excellence, whatever, piety of the Romans. It's not even philosophical truth. It's whatever the truth that beauty is able to attain through the great poet. And that's, it seems like he's like establishing that hierarchy and Pythagoras is his way of like kind of putting in the philosopher and to dismiss it. When we one or one or two sessions ago, we talked about how it seemed like with the epic, he was sort of in the traditional epic paradigm right achilles is the hero and then the poet exists to sort of spread his deeds far and wide right so what achilles does is eternal and then the poet sort of comes next to that and and ovid is saying no 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 the poet's eternal um and the actions mm -hmm. of men and gods are sort of the material that he acts on but he's really at the top of this hierarchy i think that's right i think that has to yeah, we which is why joyce loves and, uh... him <laughs> <laughs> we discussed that at length and we talked about book 12 but uh mm -hmm. that's the, the fabled lost episode of the keynote mythology <laughs> all right <laughs> just so you know listeners. well maybe one way we can think about and i do think we need to move to the other episodes in a minute but maybe we can try to articulate so if pythagoras is really a foil for ovid and they're doing something different the thing they're doing different is subtle and so I'm just going to read a little bit of Pythagoras's speech, and then I'm going to ask, which I think is kind of the, the core of what he's saying, and then I'm going to ask, how is what Ovid is doing different than what Pythagoras is proclaiming? So this is line 180, page 371. Pythagoras says, full sail I voyage over the boundless ocean, and I tell you, nothing is permanent in all the world. All things are fluent. Every image forms wandering through change. Time is itself a river in constant movement, and the hours flow by, flow by like water, wave on wave, pursued, pursuing, forever fugitive, forever new. That which has been is not, that which was not begins to be motion and movement, always in the process of renewal, so on and so forth. Right. So Ovid starts his book, right? I sing of bodies changed. And my inclination, and I can't quite work it out yet, but my inclination is that Pythagoras is giving sort of a bastardized version of what Ovid is presenting. And if we look carefully, Ovid is doing something more nuanced than this. And I guess I'll say personally, right, if we read this 400 page book over the last two and a half months, just to learn that everything is changing, right, I'm going to be disappointed in the time we spent. I think Ovid is some, up to something a little deep, deeper and subtler than this. And so I guess my question would be, what is that? Which, in another way of asking that question is, how is Ovid's work performing this idea, but in a 
deeper, more interesting, subtler, nuanced way. So this is kind of a grammatical point, and I don't quite know how to get into this because I don't think my Latin is, is good enough to really make this point entirely. But one of the things that's really interesting about Latin is the subjunctive first person singular, I might, or I should, or I, not I should, I could, or I, I shall, is the same word as the, as the future first person singular, I will. So in Latin grammar, it's hard to distinguish I will do something from I might do something. It requires like a little bit of verbal finesse. And so that epilogue is all in first person, either subjunctive singular or future singular, in which case Ovid is saying, I might last forever, I will last forever, I might be read, I will be read. And like the Latin grammar has this amazing ambiguity. Whereas Pythagoras's speeches, I have sailed, and then he switches to third person, which is a clear distinction between subjunctive and future tense. I and mean, it's all present tense anyways, it is this way. And I feel like that's a really important part of the transformation, even though this is like all about grammatical like moods. There's something where Ovid is open to the, the ambiguity of that transformation or the intentionality or the, it's not timeless, right? It's, it's looking to the future and the, and, the, and the openness of the future and the past. Whereas Pythagoras is, is the, the cold dictate of, the, of third person comments. I was kind of alluding to this earlier, but jumping off of that is like, doesn't it feel like with Pythagoras, he wants to guarantee the eternal in some otherworldly kind of way, like soul. Yes. Soul undergoes change, but it does last forever in some ephem or some, you know, non-physical realm. Whereas, and I think this is to your point, Greg, the way that Ovid talks about it himself it directly locates it in the historical realm. It makes the possibility of eternality of being remembered. And I think that's key is like he's, he associates it with being remembered that, but that makes it historical, but that also makes it a might, right? There's no guarantee of the eternal. Whereas in Pythagoras, there is some sort of a guarantee of the eternal. I guess I'm turning Ovid into a historicist. I'm trying to connect what you were saying, Greg, to what Elijah's question was before. The key thing there seems to me that Ovid is leaving a kind of like a propulsive like possibility, like an openness, whereas Pythagoras, there's a very, ultimately almost like a kind of like a static quality to his vision, even though it's a vision of flux. I th if I can jump in for a second, Adam, I think what you're saying, uh, what, what you're saying is making me think is all throughout this book, Ovid has never really seemed to me as the proponent of a doctrine, mm -hmm. right? He starts with an, he starts with a, a curiosity and a insight that, that things are changing and I'm going to talk about it, but it doesn't seem to me that he is developing a doctrine and then when we read Pythagoras, it very much feels like we're reading a doctrine. But one way to read this is he gets to the end of his book and he goes, these idiots are not going to get the point of my doctrine. So I'm going to put it in the mouth of somebody and he'll just exposit it in a way so that nobody could possibly miss it. Right. Mm -hmm. This is what Anne Rand does at the end of her novels. It's insufferable. Right. 
both artistically and in terms of content. I don't think he's doing that. No, and that's right. I mean, it, the, the we've talked in you know a lot about um, the morality of this book, or if there's a morality or something, and it's like the puzzle there is that you are in a world of change and flux and transformation that has these moral qualities, but it's very hard to get a hold of what is fixed in them, if anything is fixed in them, or what they what they mean within what what that quality of human moral capacity means within a you know a sort of mutating world. Whereas Pythagoras in this very dogmatic way says the world is mutating, nothing is fixed, everything's in flux, but it's always wrong to eat animals. Don't do it. It's it's horrible. He doesn't like investigate the you know the, the puzzling or paradoxical effects of making that kind of a statement. And in a way, it seems like that's what I guess I'm saying is static about it. Yeah, it's doctrinal. And whereas Ovid would and has spent a lot of time trying to represent in these various ways what it means to say we're living in the, this space of constant change and constant flux, right? And, and Ovid has a keen eye for the pathos of those metamorphoses, right? So Pythagoras just basically says, hey, you're all going to die. Uh, your soul lives on, so get over it. Don't don't mourn death. Don't worry about it. I mean, it's kind of Lucretian in that sense. And uh, I feel like Ovid's just given us tons and tons of stories that are filled with pathos, and they're particularistic, right? They're looking at particular moments of transformation, and we read them, and we're drawn in. And then Pythagoras sort of basically says, well, these actually shouldn't be that interesting to you because it's the state of the world, and there's nothing you can do about it, and it's not really a tragedy. And so the, there's a real tonal shift there, too. Yeah, I'm trying to thread a, a couple things together, but I was thinking a lot about how the structure of a dedication works where a poet says, I don't know if I have the innate capacity to tell a story, so I'm going to ask a God in aiding me to accomplish this. And so I was kind of doing that when he says, like, I'm, I, I, I'm trying to sing of bodies changed and I hope that it will go this way. So he starts the poem with that. He completes the poem entirely. And then he says, if I have done this, then I might or I will be immortal. But the book doesn't ever turn to the past, right? Even though it's treated the past historically, it has no orientation to the past. You like read it through and it's already looking to the future. It starts looking to the future, even though it's the far past. And it stays looking to the future. Whereas Pythagoras says, I sailed around the whole world. My experience, my past tense is the grounds for this claim. Avin makes no claims of experience. He's never personally seen any of this shit, right? It's just, it's literally not, not, it's, it's ex nihilo. So I've seen it all. And then he says, switches to present tense. Therefore, everything is static. Everything changes everything and it's this completely closed text where it's just simple propositions this is this this is this these things you think are different change renders them the same everything is the same everything is the same and it's such a completely different way like it couldn't be a further difference in how to look at the world or how to look at those claims than than how Ovid set it up in, in Ovid's universe, the, the law of constant change itself would be subject to change. Yeah, right. 
Another way to say it is a book can be reread. So Pythagoras's speech is purely for, where the repetition of speech is purely for cognition. Once you understand the point, there's no point in further reading it, right? And so the only reason that he repeats it is he's like, here's the moral, you know, don't eat your animals because you probably forgot that in the time you were reading this, but the moral is don't mm. eat your animals. He literally says, please remember, don't eat your yeah. animals, right? Um, like a structural level, actually, I don't think, have we had any Have we had any episodes in Ovid where the morals repeated at the end? Some of them have like little morals at the beginning, but I don't think there have been any that end with a moral, right? I think there, I think, I don't know. I, I, I have a feeling. I, I feel, feel like, like there must've been one somewhere because there's always a counterexample yeah. in this, in this yeah, problem, book. Yeah, this book is too inconsistent. But the way Ovid tells his, his book is it literally invites you to read it because it, it, he says the condition of my fame is that this book will be read again and again across the whole world. And that's a conditional future in, in that at the very beginning, I was already just hoping that I would do this, which means that somehow each time you read this book, you could actually get something different from it. Or unlike Pythagoras, he's not appealing merely to our memory in asking for th that the statement have its worth. I like that because one way to ensure your fame, the fame of your work in a changing world is to create a work that can change, right? Or that changes as it's reread. Are there any moments where Ovid like addresses the reader directly? Because what we're describing here is a very dialectical relationship between author and reader. And I'd be interested if there were any moments where Ovid sort of comments on that. We definitely have had, within the frame, we've had storytellers sort of speak to their listeners, right? But I don't know that we've had Ovid directly address us. Depends on how you think about it. I mean, like when, when he begins the story of Biblis by saying, Biblis is a story about why girls should not desire what is forbidden or whatever i don't is it we regard that as him addressing us directly i don't i'm not sure i think seemed, what greg's yeah. alluding to elijah is sort of a addressing the audience because he's telling here's my intention this is what you're getting yourself into but that's the only thing i can think of sorry what were you gonna say alex well one thing i was thinking about was coming from from something that that you were saying paul um, and I was thinking about these two sorts of immortality where one is the Pythagorean notion of the immortality of the soul that comes out in his speech, but the, the other Ovidian immortality that I was thinking of was in these transformations where, um, like Ajax, he becomes a flower and so the flower is the the symbol that reminds us because the immortality is in being remembered and so the flower is the important symbol that jogs the memory to think of ajax and so ajax lives on in that way and it's a very different form of immortality uh than Pythagoras puts forward. Yes, and that form of memorializing requires the poet to supplement, right? The physical world. That's right, because without Ovid, it's just a flower. So where Pythagoras fails to convince is he 
he doesn't reference Acteon when when talking about you know you could kill wild beasts but don't go hunting for the stag because remember Acteon you could be killing Acteon I was reading a little bit of outside work about this various like traditions of commentary the metamorphosis and apparently during the middle ages a really significant one was that Acteon was treated as a prefiguration of Christ and that his death pleading for his life somehow was an allegorical uh, rendering of Christ's death on the cross were, killed by his friends right yeah, yes yeah. there were incredible attempts made to turn uh, the whole metamorphosis into a Christian allegory if anybody wants to do a that's a dissertation topic Elijah that I think would be hilarious you can see that when he talks about the son father dynamic with zeus and saturn mm. like right before he gets the deification of augustus yeah do you think that the the end where we have historical activity ascending to heaven represents a kind of new age the age of man that you know i mean like it begins with the zeus dethroning Jupiter dethroning Saturn, initiating a new age, and then the sort of final act is the greatest Roman emperor of all ascending to heaven. So in the framework we were just discussing, that would place the poet above Mount Olympus, right? He literally says above the stars, right? Above the stars, yeah. He gives himself that place. Well, at the beginning of the book, he does the four ages, right? And the Iron Age is, is like kind of where his stories begin. And it would, it would make sense that the end of the book is an inauguration of a new age, which is the age of the Caesars of the Eternal City, which is not eternal. Mm-hmm. But neither would it be previous ages, right? Mm-hmm. Not, even, not even the reign of uh, Jupiter is eternal. Should we look at some of the surrounding tales and, and see if these can illuminate our inquiry would you like to draw our attention to a specific place in the text mr noel (laughs) what the record show mr noel has (laughs) decided not to draw our attention to a specific place in the text i mean we could talk about the curing of the plague uh Right, which starts with another invocation, yeah. right, in the middle of a book, pretty strange, and, and now amuses helper of the poets, you knowers and rememberers, aid the telling of how an island in the Tiber's channel brought the god Asclepius to Rome. Uh, yeah, I probably... was, that invocation was very strange. I didn't know what to make of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the whole story is because uh, the god comes from a Greek island, and they have to convince him to come as a snake to Rome. And so, I mean, there is a real sense of the passing of the mantle from Greece to Rome that Romans were very interested in, in constructing mythology around. But why the, why bring in the muses right there? Oh, I don't know. I guess, I mean, you could think he's, he's asking, he's asking them to helpers, the poets, you knowers and rememberers. Somebody's asking the memory, I guess, of the Greek civilization to aid his telling of the passing of the torch to Rome. Or not. And of course, the invocation is parallel with Homer's invocation at the beginning of Iliad to get help from the muses. Right. Well, that's kind of, I mean, that's the relationship with the, the traditional invocation at the beginning of epic poems 
is strange altogether. I mean, he doesn't have one at the beginning of the poem itself, and there are just there are a few throughout. He does he does have one at the beginning, right? Mm, not in the not in Homer's sense of asking a muse to help him. I don't think, right? And I guess he sort of does. Yeah, he, my, he, my my intention is to tell if bodies change to different the forms, gods, the gods yeah, who made the yeah, changes will help me, true. or I hope so. Yeah. With a poem that runs from the world's beginning to our own days. Certainly that initial invocation has more ambivalence than Homer. Well, I think what makes it not an invocation is there's no direct address. Like, oh, I, I think you, you have to have a, there's no, it's not a prayer. You have to have a prayer. I, don't know, I guess I think there's not an invocation at the beginning because the invocation proper to a Roman at this time is to Augustus. And that's saved until the end of the poem. I think that's like a political explanation, but that, that's my best guess at why the invocation's not there. I'm sure there's artistic and aesthetic reasons too. But it, like, but, it, I mean, but he could have invoked. I mean, politically, wouldn't have, wouldn't it have been more expedient to invoke Augustus at the beginning of the poem? Yeah, his his political reason for not doing that would have been that seems it would be something like he really wants to undermine the project of Augustus or, or the city or question it. And so he puts it off to the last possible second and then includes it at the end as an addendum. And I, I said before, the tone of this tone of book 15 feels so different than the rest of the poem. 14, it's wild. 15. It's, it's such a different, it's such a different book. And I guess, I mean, I have the, the prejudice that I have the prejudice that assumes that the ending of the book is closer to the author's intention than the beginning well, that's all my, how i just wanted to read the muses invocation in Asclepius. is it just Asclepius? is it the same guy as a different different snake medicine man the i i just felt like that maybe he had more invocations scattered throughout the work and he cut them all but he didn't cut this one like it, it it's, it's really unclear why you've got the prayer now but not before especially too we've had people say remember who are those those storytellers those humans who did a great job but then were punished by was it apollo even though they won the contest and they did they told the story excellently without an invocation so we've been taught early on in the the work that humans can tell incredible poetry better than the gods even without asking for help and then now we're in book 15. He hasn't really needed it so far. Maybe there's an invocation I missed, but it's just not been really part of the work. And then all of a sudden he starts, he has three real quick, first the muses and then the gods of the pantheon and then the native, which I take to mean like Roman pre-Greek gods or Roman hero cults. And he says, after Augustus dies, we'll also be praying to him. Right. Maybe that's the reason they couldn't invoke him at the beginning because he is not in the world of the poem is not deified yet. <laughs> so he can't be prayed to. There's a, a final invocation of Augustus implied. <laughs> what do you uh, what do you think about this part in the uh, deification of Caesar section? So it's like seven, or I guess maybe eight fifteen and onward. This is where Venus is trying to prevent Caesar, Julius Caesar, from being assassinated. 
Then Venus beat her breast with both her hands and tried to hide him, her Caesar in a cloud, as she had rescued Paris from Menelaus as Aeneas fled Diomedes' sword. And Jove spoke to her, my daughter, do you think your power alone can move the fates no power can ever conquer? Enter the home of the three sisters. There you will see the records on bronze and solid iron, wrought with tremendous effort, and no crashing of sky, no wrath of lightning, no destruction shall make them crumble. They are safe forever. There you will find engraved on adamant the destinies of the race, unchangeable. I have read them and remembered. I will tell you so you may know the future. He has finished the time allotted to him, this son you grieve for. His debt to earth is paid, but he will enter the heaven as a god and have his temples on earth as well. This you will see fulfilled will bring about you and his son together. Several things are interesting about it to me. The first is that Jove links his power to having read these tablets and remembered them. He sort of links his power to, to memory of what's engraved on the stones. And also just the fact that the will of the fates, the unchangeable will of the fates is written down on, on like ancient stone tablets and the writing on those tablets controls the actions of the gods right it's one of the again one of the few every time every time we've seen writing in this book i think has been an interesting moment and this is another example of that sort of the like before history before anything that happened in the poem before rome or anything like that there's this you know, invincible <laughs> invincible tablet with the will a little fate in the past and the present and the future all inscribed on it which relates, Adam, to the controversy from several books ago about uh, extending one's life or bringing someone back from the dead, right? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. You gods, you can't do that unless the fates have already preordained it. Mm -hmm. That's the one. That's yeah, and it's, it's subordinate. That's unchangeable. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, again, it subordinates the gods' power to what? I mean, it makes them characters, it makes them characters in a drama that's already written. As a, as a side note, this question of hiding him in the cloud, uh, right? Livy talks about with Romulus, the founder of Rome. He says, some people say he was hidden in the cloud and the gods took him away. Other people say that the people ripped him apart limb by limb. We don't <laughs> know which right. one is true. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a sort of association with Livy and Caesar here, or Caesar and Romulus here. So there's a there's also, we should talk about the story of the, the guy who was supposed to be the king of the city and said, oh, actually, I'm going to run away rather than be king, right? And our footnote said something like, here at this crucial moment, um, Livy is sort of celebrating this sort of Republican ideal of sort of disinterested leadership and putting down the, the reins of power, you know, not, not becoming a tyrant, essentially. And then right after that, we have Caesar. Anything to say about that? That's the story of that's the story of Cyprus, right? So Cyprus, there's a prophecy that says he'll be the king. He hides his horn, and he says, "May the gods avert such a destiny as me becoming the the king of the city." Oh, far far better to be an exile than my home, an exile from my home than king on the capital. And so he ends up running away and becoming a farmer. Since he might not come within the city, the Senate gave him as a gift of honor whatever land a sturdy team of oxen could plow from dawn to darkness. His warning, right? If I become king, you'll all be slaves. Right? So we have this little 
portrait of this sort of Republican ideal sort of tucked away in the story of the uh, deification, right before the deification of Caesar. When really the, uh, so you have Cyphus who avoids being king. Then you have the deadly pestilence, right? The plague that comes to the city and almost destroys it. And then at the last minute, this Greek God comes and saves it. And then after that, people are ready to accept a Caesar after this moment of crisis. But Ovid has this very strange transition. So he goes through all the, the hoops of describing the snake-like God, getting to Rome, entering, climbed the mast and swung. He had entered Rome. This is line 740. He, the snake, had entered Rome, uh, a sepulus, the capital of the world, and climbed the mast and swung his head about as if to seek his proper habitation. Here, the serpent's son, Apollo's offspring, came to land, put on his heavenly form again, and to the people brought health and end of mourning. So you have a guy refusing to be the tyrant, refusing to be the king, doing anything to avoid it, choosing instead the agrarian life of a farmer. You have a crisis, this plague, the snake comes, puts an end to it. And then the next thing you have is the deification of Caesar and Ovid introduces it in this way. The old God came to our shrines from foreign lands, but Caesar is God in his own city, first in war and first in peace. So, I mean, there's some sort of story there about I think about Rome moving from the Republic to the tyranny of the Caesars. And there's at least some ambivalence about it. I don't know. The whole Republic is almost, there's really no, the Republic is just like glossed over altogether, right? You just go from the founding to the Caesars, basically, except for the snake god. Mm -hmm. well, I was saying right before them, Adam is the Cyprus guy who refuses to be king. Right. That's like right. A, a, right, right. a slight nod to republicanism, right? A right. Subtle, and I think it's the only reference to it in the whole book. This long section of Roman history, hundreds of years, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, the snake cabin made me think of the snakes that show up in the Aeneid in book two, and eat. I can't remember the name of the or of the prophet, but they eat him and his son. And convince the Trojans that they should accept the the horse. Yeah, the, the horse. Oh, I can't believe I forgot his name. He's my favorite. Laocon. Laocon. Yeah. I don't know to what degree that's a that's a reference to that, but it would be uh would be an interesting one because it would be another example of it'd be very Virgilian in the sense that something that caused or was played an important role in the downfall of troy also plays an important role in the in the foundation of rome right the roman empire i really didn't know what to do that snake god story was really weird to me i didn't know <laughs> i i didn't know what to make of that i think you're right that, that there must be some sense that it's yeah the greek culture being incorporated into roman context but i don't well, I think Ovid loves it too because it's so metamorphosical, right? The god becomes a snake. The snake is the god and they're going to join up with the people and the people worship the snake. Should, should we sort of shift the conversation to like a general evaluation of Ovid within the epic tradition, which we've sort of been talking about, but maybe a little more explicitly, like where do we put him? Is he... Yeah, what is he doing to the epic tradition? 
that we've been tracing, you know, from Homer up to him. What's interesting about Ovid's Metamorphoses is that it covers such a large span of time from the creation to the present day. What we've seen that's come before it is the the pilgrimage of Aeneas, the wanderings of Odysseus, and the brief part of the Trojan War signifying Achilles' rage in the Iliad. So things like Homer's Iliad, it occurs in a in a very short span of time. But Ovid is is showing us all these things from such a long period of time. The narrative of the metamorphoses is not grounded by by watching a particular character move in the world. That's for sure. <laughs> There's also a tradition though that I he's obviously drawing from of, of these synoptic histories, uh, Hesiod, like Lucretius, I think you could think of that way as well. Um, I know I'm sure there are others that I don't know. I don't know anything about, but again, I, this, you know, I, I believe the, that that type of epic was often deployed to reach moral or philosophical conclusions. And the history of the world was like sort of deployed as evidence for those conclusions. And, um, we do not definitely do not have that here unless we regard Pythagoras's speech as the sort of culminating philosophical statement of Ovid, the author, which I think we pretty thoroughly dismissed. So I think this is the, this seems to me to be the most ur- urban and ironic, ironic in the sense that it's twisting. The meaning is always twisting and doesn't seem to be fixed in a very self-conscious way thing <laughs> that we've read. Uh, and, and certainly the, the epic tradition, I, you can maybe make an argument that some of the dialogues of Plato have that have that quality, but that aside, it seems like the most, yeah, urban and self-conscious and ironic work of literature up to this point in the tradition. Well, and it certainly seems to me, and I've made this argument before, that the connective tissue of, of Ovid, it is sort of a world history in a sense, but the connective tissue is really the storyteller's whim. Mm-hmm go multiple directions but he goes ah and this reminds me of this person's great grandson <laughs> who of course did blah 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 which and he had a bow and so did the next story have a bow <laughs> like uh you know that's yeah, yeah the, the logic is and so the storyteller is much more present in that mm. sense right there's an interesting way in which because there's not a central character around whom the plot turns you or a, a central well, he, he knows he needs to end at Rome. That's it. And any path right. there. Right. It's fair right. game. Right. Well, yeah. So I was saying like, there's no like central coherent narrative. Like there is in Virgil. There's no central character that everything turns around like there is in Homer. That makes it m- more about the personality of the writer. Even though it's not as if this is like a, some sort of confessional poem or something, but there you do get a sense of his personality in a way that you do not in pre- the previous epics, I'd say. It's a it's about the poetry itself, you know. I, I, I mean, it, you kind of get that in Virgil, just because it's so self-aware what's going on there. But it seems to me like in Virgil, the the central character is Rome, as I think we discussed. And then in Homer, it's more about like 
yeah, those like two really strong characters, but also just like the events that surround it. And there's those events just like kind of direct the plot and narrative a lot more. Whereas here it is much more like Elijah said, the whim of the poet. But I think that also just makes it more about the art form itself. And I do think that is a really striking difference. Yeah, Virgil, given his own purpose in writing, he couldn't really afford to waste time, right? It is so tightly constructed. And here in Ovid, he really has time to luxuriate on whatever he wants, right? The snake god. Perhaps just, you know, we can think about why he put it in there, just perhaps for the beauty of telling the story, right? It might, it might be mainly that. Yeah, although, I mean, there, there, there is a principle of, of metamorphosis, right? Especially when you, when we read, we didn't spend a lot of time thinking about this, but when he retells the previous epics, he really emphasizes the moments of metamorphosis, which are not, it's not a common event in those poems, right? So in that sense, there is a kind of method. But that, uh, it's, a, but it's a principle of storytelling, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to take whatever story I find and I'm going to put metamorphosis into in it, whether it's relevant or not mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to my source material. Mm-hmm. And he does tell some stories where the where the metamorphosis itself is quite unimportant to the main action. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. I guess I was thinking like in place of a character or in place of a, a, a history that has to be told in this very so yeah so virgil everything is very it's packed very tightly because there's this the story we all know is ending to that's be unfolded in this most like economical way possible you know and in virgil there is <clears throat> there are characters and the actions of characters that, that presumably the stories about these these near mythological heroes of the previous age that are, you have to like have some fidelity to but in ovid instead you have a kind of a principle of narrative choice right and the principle is I'm just going to prefer wherever I can, <laughs> wherever I can find a metamorphosis. I'm going to prefer that, and I'm going to emphasize that. And somehow that that maybe adds that sense of openness or possibility or something that we well, talked right. about. Right. And if, if Pythagoras is right at all, right, everything is changing all the time. Then to say I tell of bodies changed is really to take the whole universe for your subject matter. There's really nothing off limits. And right, to be creatures in time is to be creatures that change. Yeah, I think that's, true. I think that's Aristotle's thing but yeah so he's he claims a much wider ground um and then within that ground he doesn't necessarily feel like he has to cover everything right there's a lot of myths here but i'm sure there's a lot he didn't choose it does feel though like the complete adaption of the poetic tradition if not adaption of the adaptation of the poetic fact like I, I don't know of any works that this doesn't consume or subsume. And I think that's in some ways like his most deliberate attempt. And all it really feels like an attempted end at the mode of epic poetry. Because to write a poem that addresses every other work, especially in a way that dismisses every work at the same time it addresses them, right? The episodes he highlights are so bizarre in context of the works themselves that it feels like he's trying to cap off the tradition once and for all and say, and here's mine. 
and it's it's better than yours well and it seems like to go along with that the critique of the gods and the critique of the city would be really important to that right because now it's not about myth well i say this hesitatingly but like it's not so much about like the mythology of the gods of the city it's more about as we've kind of been suggesting this whole time it seems like about what humans do and like i don't know that that feels like that does feel like another way of approaching storytelling and and also like a capping of the epic tradition it's leaving behind those traditional points of emphasis so that that's interesting yeah because they would also link his project to rome and away as well right if we think of rome as this kind of culmination of world history and this find the you know this eternal or quasi-eternal city and i does anyone know like of any epic poems within the greco-roman context i, mean, I know we can like I, mean, I know there's like beowulf and then you know the song of roland i think is like in the ninth century and then you get to dante or whatever after that but I don't know of any other Roman epics that follow this one. Certainly they're not good enough. <laughs> if they, if they, do. <laughs> they didn't make the cut. Yeah. <laughs> well, or they were lost, you know, like, yeah, I just have never even heard of, I mean, but why know. were they lost Paul? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's, the, there's this library and it burned down. <laughs> <laughs> They kept the bad books there. I think so. There's the, the Civil War by Lucan, which uh, Wikipedia is telling me was composed in the 60s AD. But yeah, I don't know if we, look at, if we look at Wikipedia, we can find one or two examples of mm-hmm. epics that someone composed after this. But we, yeah, I, I can't think of anything that I've ever seen as like a living example of any tradition, right? Yes, your, your larger point that uh it does seem to have sort of stopped the roman tradition of epics in its tracks seems to me to be right <laughs> that's interesting that the epic of transformation is like <laughs> fixed it in bliss a final well, irony <laughs> well there's something i mean i i don't know i'm of two minds about this book <laughs> um but there's something his sort of I don't know, I guess maybe I'm a romantic in this regard, but there's something that's sort of, there's something that's sort of sad about losing, losing the ability to sort of be awed by heroism, right? Like to have a hero who's larger than life, who, who we can sort of just unironically enjoy, Un- unironically sort of, not even enjoy, but unironically sort of be in, in awe of. Ovid sort of does away with that. And I can sort of see how in the Roman context, maybe that felt appropriate or needed, but there's something sad about it too. It feels like a human need to have uh, a ki- heroes like Achilles that have not been put in their place. You don't think just that he- the poets. Was he, yeah, is he offering himself as a replacement? That would really go along with our linking him to the modernists. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something to that. It's not totally satisfying to me personally. But I think that, I mean, yes, I think that's quite arguably his intention. And you don't think there's any sincere sense in which he's offering the emperors as that either? Not particularly. 
I, I have to think about that. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, I think what I'm getting at is. Well, I don't think, I mean, I, I just quickly, I would say, I don't think, I wouldn't think so either, mostly because they're the pinnacle of their heroism as they become gods, right? And I mean, the gods have been so thoroughly mocked themselves by this poem that it's hard for me to take that as a, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But they seem like the gods that might be worth admiring because they did human stuff, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, at the at one point in our last episode, Greg, you were quoting the Wittgenstein, um, you know, of that which we, of that which we cannot speak, we must be silent. And there's some sort of feeling as I get to the end of this, and I go, okay, well, everything is changing, and Ovid has done a heroic job, I guess, of sort of cataloging all the different ways that could look, but it doesn't really feel like it propels me to anything further. It just feels like we're and this whole conversation has been sort of uh, stops and starts more than usual. Cause, and I think it's because on the level of content, it's like, well, what the heck are we supposed to do with this now? You know, I don't know. I just, it, it just doesn't feel like a, if it is, if it is meant to be the epic that caps the epic tradition, uh, the sort of philosophical or cultural content of it is not that satisfying. That's where I want to read. Yeah, I, I I totally agree. That's where I want to read it a lot more politically. And I, and I know that's not going to be satisfying either, but it really seems like in the context of the complete collapse of the Roman Republic and the rise of the, the Caesars, irony is extremely pervasive. The sense of like finitude and completion is extremely pervasive. The sense of I feel like they come hand in hand like with the irony comes the sense that there's nothing more to be done with nothing more to be done comes this really deep sense of irony mm-hmm. and that's why this and, book and i would say a deep sense of exhaustion that's what you're talking yeah about, right? exhaustion right like he's turning back over all these stories the guys are just miserable rapists and that's the world we've been thrust into and i think that that's where the work feels actually compelling to me is uh, you know that that feels politically emotionally akin to looking back from the height of the american empire you know to to our history or something like that where jade none of our heroes are heroes anymore our gods aren't gods anymore and we're just wandering around looking for something and i think ovid finds a way to find beauty and meaning in that but not in a way that i find that i can carry on that tradition or something yeah it is worth just like a historical fact it is worth. i feel like we read we've been reading this and we're discussing it as if it's not just the the end of the epic tradition in the roman context but like in some way the is occurring at the end of roman empire but it's like in a way this is a work that is at the written at the apex of the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire, you know, persists for another five hundred years after this. Uh, you know, depending on how you think about it, for longer than that. I agree that those. I I also sense those things here, but I am a little wary of retroactively imposing too much of that onto this this book. I guess. I mean, I agree, Adam. That like certainly, the Roman Empire doesn't literally fall. But I think, especially in the language echoed around the time, there's a lot of apocalyptic language in the air. There's a lot of belief in the in this in the staidness of things. So it's mm. it's yeah the, the the 
And what comes after this is, is totally miserable in that it's like this grinding, you know, I don't know if the Republic was all that great, but, it, but the, I think there was a real sense that, that the distinctly Roman civilization terminated with the fall of the Republic. And now this hyper cosmopolitan slave empire, which will limp along for many centuries is the, is the new norm. And I think that is, that is the capstone that Ovid's writing from. Yeah. It feels like there's something really essential lost when Caesar becomes Caesar to like the stability of what was so valued of the Roman empire. And that's, that, that's what, that's where, that's where those like apocalyptic feelings come in. I mean, just imagine if the very bleak readings, it's like the climax of the whole, of the whole epic poem is actually like the worst thing that happens. It's like the deification of Caesar is the end of the glory of Rome. I think part of that, I don't know. I really have a hard time reading Ovid's politics, but I think that has to be there. There has to be this sense that, that the Republic had something that the, that the new empire lacks. Well, and part of it too was just that, like, we read this in grad school, like, that time where before Caesar takes, you know, becomes Caesar was so tumultuous. So, like, even the thing that seemed to be the highest accomplishment of the Roman Empire, the Republic, the Senate, like, all these, you know, structures that were in place led to this, these really miserable conditions that could only be solved by, you know, tyrant coming in and you know, putting some sort of stability to it, you know, uh, there's something really bleak about that. like the, the, the Roman dream is, is over as it were, you know? And I think that, that, that relates to what we're experiencing now too. Like the American dream is somehow over, obviously I'm, you know, speculating a lot here, but it feels analogous to me. Well, I think, so even if we weren't thinking of it, I think the political thing, well, I think, Adam, your warning is well heeded. I, I also do sense the sort of political cynicism here that the others are pointing out. I also just think, I mean, there's sort of an alternating feeling of, there's a, a feeling that at my best moments, I get this feeling of like playfulness with Ovid and this sort of like endless play with stories and words. And there's something enchanting about that. But I guess even I, was, I mentioned the word exhausting, there's something, there's a sense of like philosophical exhaustion here. Like it just, it, it just, yeah, it doesn't, I don't know. His vision of the world doesn't feel generative to me in a sense that I don't know that I would want to write a poem that just cataloged more transformations. We have this problem of irony and in losing the sense of the hero, at least for me personally, it really sort of takes the winds out of my wind out of my sails and thinking about further stories right if Ovid has really put his finger on the thing then like okay so why tell more stories it just feels like he sort of staked out his ground in this infinite transformation if you can tell it beautiful beautifully it's not really meaningless but if you think about it a little harder it actually is really meaningless I don't know I mean which is kind of I guess I'm just 
you know, we live in the, I mean, you know, I'm just thoroughly Christian in my thinking. So I, I prefer the linear. <laughs> well, I, prefer, I, I think, I think I it's almost like story. the world was awaiting a new kind of hero, perhaps yeah. more for the lower classes with a different agenda, heroic agenda. I no, I, I mean, I I mean I've been know. so shaped by that. Anyway, go ahead, Paul. Well, as someone said it earlier, I can't remember, but I think it's because you, you you stake your claim in the future rather than in the past like the 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 whole the the worth of humanity is not embedded in the traditions and the customs of one's city or one's you know empire but it is something you can look forward to look into there's there's and with with this with this sense of like everything is always changing I think necessarily there's got to come a sense of hope with that. Not like a naive hope, of course, especially I think with Ovid, like there's going to be bad things that come along with that, but there is a sense that this, this form of political social reality is not the last one. And, you know, that's good. (laughs) You know, there's hope to be found in that. And I think that does, provide a basis from which there can be new poetry there can be new creativity there can be new philosophy etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah yeah i mean I, I don't know i sort of go back and forth on that as well i sometimes i feel that optimism in Ovid that yeah there's all this change is a generative force moving into the future and yeah there are new things will be born from that and the yeah the future is, is just sort of like being shaped in these unpredictable ways by what's happened before on the other hand, I do, I, I, I do understand Elijah's point that it sort of feels, ultimately it feels frivolous, you know, there's a kind of like meaninglessness to it that is also exhausting because it's, but that's, a, you have you the only reason, anywhere. the only re, yeah, but that's, but that's the point though. That's because you have to presuppose that the point is to stand somewhere. If you understand human life as being changed, if you understand it as not standing anywhere, then you become comfortable with that. Yeah, if you're a traditionalist, if you're conservative in this fundamental sense, yes, this is a bleak picture of human reality, but that's just because you've set your presuppositions in a certain way that's antithetical to this way of seeing the world. I would say some days I wake up and I have conservative dispositions, some days I have liberal dispositions and I don't know how to reconcile them. Well, and uh, point point very well taken paul and i and really what i was getting at is that for me effectively effectively in terms of affect yeah the the infinite change thing is just not as thrilling to me as it is to some others and that's okay it's not so much an intellectual position just a an affective one that's because you've left yourself to the bleak reality that is our historical um, inheritance. <laughs> I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah. All I mean, right. I am too, ultimately. <laughs> <laughs> um, any other uh, uh, last words on, on Ovid before we close this uh, endless, endless, endless search for the key? <laughs> That's oh, really endless. Right. We can just, we all just need to uh, get with, we need to move to Silicon Valley, join a venture capital firm. We need to become, you know, hip with Bezos and Musk. And we can ascend into the singularity together and just can, in like an infinite loop <laughs> with no you know, traction with the physical world at all. We can just endlessly search for the key, reading and rereading the same text over and over. Staying at work, being ourselves. Yeah, it's perfect harmony with the spheres, exactly. <laughs>
the, the right. new the new conservatism. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, you haven't talked in a while. Would you like to say some words of summary about Ovid? Right. Uh, he's just always. You can feel free to say no too. Moving the target. Uh, things are always changing. Um, I I did really enjoy how how thoroughly committed he was to his his project of telling us of beings changed things changed and how things being changed or or people being changed into natural objects gave me some other ideas of of how to appreciate the world around me as i live my life looking at trees and rocks and (laughs) plants and things. Deeper appreciation of the mysteries of the natural world. It's a nice result from reading a book. Greg? Uh, I'm I'm still on the invocations thing. It seems that sense of the poetics point of telling from their own perspective is always the futural, but their stories themselves are in the past tense. I'm still working that out. Oh, I forgot about, uh, I just remembered a good line from Pythagoras' speech that I thought about. Where is it? Oh, yeah. On the vegetarianism. Oh, what a wicked thing it is for flesh to be the tomb of flesh. For the body's craving to fatten on the body of another. And I was reminded of in book six with the Tereus, Procne, Philomela, and Itis, where they kill the son of the king and feed it to him, feed the body to him. What a wicked thing it is for flesh to be the tomb of flesh. Next week, we'll be starting Flannery O'Connor's The Violent Barrett Away. Thank you for joining us in the search for the key to mythologies. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Uh, cannibalism as the final it's metaphor. Like, oh, it's so that's tough. Ovid for you. <laughs> <laughs>